You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to 3 a.m. 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Where we discuss and dissect the supernatural. What's the scariest thing you've encountered? That's been one of our favorite questions for years. 3 a.m. is the result of asking this question over and over again. Stories we share are typically sourced from those we know, our listeners, or personal experience. The validity of which can be determined by you, the listener. While we might not have all the answers, we find the culture and lore surrounding paranormal events and unnatural occurrences fascinating. We hope you enjoy. We hope you enjoy. We hope you enjoy. Boys. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> DJ, what? Where is yours? It's behind you. I don't know, dude. <laughs> there we go. Well, that was, that was really long. <laughs> Guys, this is the 3 a.m. podcast. My name is Charlie. My name is DJ. My name is Sean. And today with us, we also have... My name is Dom. Pew, special pew. guest. A.K.A. Pukana. Yep. Uh, Dom is a good friend of ours. He's also an extreme sports dude. I- I'll let you introduce yourself. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, I am a full-time fan, long-time listener. So <sighs> thanks for having me. Hey. <laughs> um, I run a business out here in Salt Lake City called Pukana Adventure Co., and uh, I teach people to fly, and we do a little bit of base jumping, speed flying, powered paramotoring, um, hopefully canyoneering soon. Yeah, so if you've been seeing like photos of me going camping and canyoneering, it's because of Dom. He's been taking me. Wow, man. <laughs> <laughs> but nice. Anyway, uh, 3 a.m.'s uh, podcast where we get together, tell scary stories, and we try to make you laugh and cry. That's the goal. <laughs> I'm excited to have Dom on because he's in the wilderness a lot. And every time you post about us, you're listening to us in the wilderness, I feel like. Whereas most people are listening to it in the comfort of their own home or car. Soft. <laughs> we look down on you. <laughs> no. So I feel, I feel like I chime into these guys every once in a while. I'm like, I had to turn you off this many times this week. <laughs> Just, you know, we'll be driving in the middle of nowhere. And I had drive this big Sprinter van, and so we'll be driving around, and I'll be playing 3 a.m. You guys are talking about something spooky always. And then I'm, like, turning around looking and trying to see what's in the back of the van, and I have to just <laughs> shut you guys off. It's You guys are nuts. <laughs> <laughs> 
Dude, that's the best. We actually are planning on one day recording out of Dom's van out in the woods. Yes, I'm so pumped for it. We'll do a fire and everything, and I'll have to leave. I can't be part of it. Like my <laughs> fear tolerance is so incredibly low. <laughs> it's it's awful. Like I'm already a little spooked. Well, good here. luck, mate. <laughs> Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and stuff, like your family, I guess? Yeah. Um, so my family comes from New Zealand. I'm a Maori. Um, Kia ora. The, yeah, yeah. The indigenous of New Zealand. So I'm first generation um, U.S. citizen. And um, yeah, it, prior to coming here, I think I'd promised you a few Maori folklore stories. I've been talking to my grandmother, and she won't give them to me. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah, so she, I've asked her, and our conversations have been pretty brief, but I've asked her, I said, hey, do you have anything good? And she's like, I won't talk about it. Ooh. And you know they're good then. <laughs> there's so much folklore with, uh, with the indigenous of New Zealand, with the Maori. My brother calls me the Tanifa. You guys heard of the Tanifa? Doesn't that just mean monster? Well, it's like an eel. It's like a... a <laughs> a mythical eel, and nobody knows if the Tanifa is good or bad. And so he calls me the Tanifa because he doesn't know what side I'm on. Uh, but yeah, there's just so many crazy stories um, that explain natural events and all that stuff. So I don't have a story for you guys Maori-related tonight, but hopefully in the future I'll get it out of my grandmother. Always. What <laughs> tribe were you again? Tuwharatoa. So like for those who don't know, how does that all work, like the lineage of family and things like that? Yeah, so it's broken up. Every Maori will tell you they'll trace their ancestry back to one of seven canoes that arrived to Aotearoa, to New Zealand. I'm from Te Arawa, is my canoe. Ooh. And then my tribe, so the next subset down from that is Tuwharatoa. That's my tribe that I belong to. Beneath that, there's a few subsets of tribes. And then we go by our family name. So I belong to the Chases. And the Chases are associated with a meeting house or a marae. And then beyond that, I, I come from Clark. So we had some English Pakia, some white man wiggle their way into a uh, family line. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no kidding. But um, yeah, rich heritage. And, you know, it's interesting being a Maori in the U.S. and trying to hold on to your heritage. You know, it's it's something we, I don't know, it's easy to lose. And so with every generation that, that comes over here to the U.S., we get further and farther away from that. So... My brothers and I were trying to hold on to it, trying to teach everyone that, uh, or at least all of our fanua, all, all of our fanau here about our our uh, heritage. Oh. And then uh, you, you're into like outdoor sports, but very specifically, I think your expertise is paramotor. Oh, I love it so, so much. <laughs> Tell these dudes about, like, what does that mean? <laughs> all right. So basically, imagine a lawn chair with a giant fan behind you and an engine and you have a parachute above your head and you're flying through the air. Uh, it's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, the sport's called powered paramotoring and it's a version of ultralight flight. You can literally go anywhere you want, explore anything you want to see. Uh, you just have to go up. I know, I've seen your videos and you're like, all over the Great Salt Lake, and mm -hmm. you're taking off. You see these things. You land. You look at it. And I was like, "Oh, we should utilize this." <laughs> <laughs> it's beyond cool. I mean, I could tell. I could go on all night, and I know you guys don't want me to about stories that things you see from the air. Because what you're doing is, you know, you're driving down the road. Imagine 
that you're driving, like let's just say Utah, for example, and you see all these rock formations and these giant plateaus that, that are coming up. Well, you guys drive past them. You look at them, you're like, oh, that's cool. We drive past them. We stop, park, pull out our parachutes and our paramotors, and we take off and we fly to the tops of these things. Things that like maybe people have been to the top to, but probably not unless you came with a helicopter or something. And so we're flying to the tops of these things. There's some awesome stuff. There's some weird wreckage that you scratch your head and you wonder, like, how on earth is that there? Uh, so besides recreationally, though, there's a lot of good uses for paramotoring. And so we have a lot of diverse people that get into it. We're currently working on a search and rescue program where we're trying to use the sport to identify missing persons, bodies that have drowned and, and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. But you teach paramotor, like that's what you do. That's your passion. Yeah, so that's that's what's paying the bills. That's awesome. <laughs> that's way cool. That is super cool. Tell us like the scariest thing that's ever happened to you while paramotoring, and like one of the coolest. <laughs> scariest thing that's ever happened. I I don't know if I should share the scariest <laughs> thing that ever happened because it's not a very good like marketing tool. Well, then if you don't want to, don't. But all right, fine. You got it. What I love so much about the sport and what I tell all my students is that it gives you an appreciation for the elements. Mm-hmm. It gives you appreciation for the air and for the earth and terrain. And what I mean by that is the average person just cares if it's raining or if it's sunny and, and what the temperature is. But as a pilot, and especially an ultralight pilot, every little thing matters. What the wind's doing, uh, what the dew point is, what the air pressure is. And so scariest story... I was out flying over the University of Utah, and uh, there's the Wasatch Mountain Range goes behind the University of Utah, and it's just wild wilderness. I mean, it's the craziest thing. You go from Salt Lake City, which is this busy metropolitan area, and then right at the, the foothills of the mountain, then it's just wilderness. And there's not many roads there. It's just wilderness, and it's wilderness all the way to Wyoming. It's, <laughs> it, I mean, it's heavy stuff. And so I'm flying there, and I get braver and braver, and I start going back into the mountains. And I'm having a wild time, and I got so caught up in my own head and my own mind, and I was swooping in on pine trees just out in the alpine that I had flown down into this valley and flown into the leeward side of a mountain. So what you have is you have the windward side of a mountain where all the wind obviously hits the mountain, and then the leeward side is the opposite side. What happens in the opposite side, the leeward side of the mountain, is you get turbulent air because that air is circulating, just like an eddy of a river, right? And I got caught in that eddy, that rotor air, and it collapsed my wing. And I just fell out of the sky. I was a few thousand feet up. And I fell out of the sky. And I'm falling, and the wing opens up and inflates. And I'm like, okay, good, I'm fine. But you're still in turbulent air. And the wing collapses again, and I fall. And then it opens. It probably did this six or seven times. And I had a reserve parachute. I had an extra parachute. And my hand my hand is on the handle for this reserve parachute, getting ready to throw it. Now, the thoughts going through your mind are, I put myself in this situation where if I throw this reserve parachute, that'll pretty much just drop me vertically. I'm going to get stuck in a tree. And at that point, I'm so far in the backcountry that now I'm stuck in a tree. Oh. Like, that's it. So you're de- debating in your mind... Do I try to save this parachute that I have above my head and fly in a direction that's maybe closer to civilization? Or do you descend into this tree? I decided not to throw my reserve parachute 
and uh, I took the collapses. So we took about six collapses. I end up seeing this patch of grass among all these pine trees. The pine trees are like 50 foot tall. I do not want to get stuck in them. And I aim for the patch of grass. My parachute, my paraglider opens right before I hit the ground. It's about 10 feet up. <laughs> Full thing opens, and then I just hit the ground. My legs buckle, and I roll. Oh. And I was fine, and I'm kissing the ground. I'm so grateful to be alive. And uh, and then I packed everything up and hiked for hours and hours and hours until I got out. Damn. Damn. That's nuts, bro. <laughs> Holy cow. But again, like those kind of situations, the sport is only as risky as you make it. Yeah. Right? So if you're flying from your local flight spot and you tell people where you are and and you have, you know, when you're in the air, we tell everyone have bailout points so that if something goes wrong or your engine dies or something, you have a place to land. Then you get cocky and you end up, you know, sometimes you push it, man. (laughs) Push the limit. Bro, by like the third or fourth time my thing open and close, I'd be like, all right, just kill me, bro. Like, <laughs> just decide if you're going to stay open. The six funny. straight times of your b-hole puckering. <laughs> <Yeah>. just, <laughs> I can only handle this so much. I'm not going to tell you that there's GoPro footage of it, but it's literally of me like screaming and then going, oh, okay, we're good. And then screaming and I'm, I'm like praying through six, the whole time. Six times. <laughs> You're like, God, I'll never do anything wrong again. And then it opens. You're like, oh, okay. And I'm like, oh, wait, no, no, I'll never do anything wrong. <laughs> I was just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny, dog. Tell them about the time you saw a, a kite or a, a surfboard. Oh, the video on Instagram. Is that what you're talking about? No, like when you saw like a kite board just abandoned. Yeah, so I was flying over the Great Salt Lake. If you ever have a chance to go to the Great Salt Lake, for whoever's listening, go. It's awesome. I'm flying over the Great Salt Lake, and it's just, you know, the Salt Lake is receding. And so it's miles and miles, acres and acres of salt flats, and then like, and then the water. And the Great Salt Lake isn't frequented by hardly anyone. There's a bunch of old infrastructure that's all on the beaches from where the LDS church tried to build a resort town for a long time. Is that the Saltaire? Yeah, so the Saltaire was, a little brief history, built by the LDS church. And uh, it was in an effort to boost the economy in Salt Lake City with this resort. Long story short, it must be cursed because it's been on fire, it's been flooded, it's been on fire again, and it's flooded again. <laughs> um, so the salt there still exists, but it's owned by a private investor group. Huh. Have you guys seen photos of the salt air when it was like up and running? Mm-hmm. It's unreal. Yeah. It's like a castle, dude. <laughs> it's have the you, have weirdest. You, have you seen it, Sean? I've seen it, but I haven't seen it like up and running. Like no, like photos of when it was up and running. No, no, no. I haven't seen photos of when it's up and Should running. Should show them? Sure. It's the weirdest looking structure. It doesn't match with no it's, anything it's, American. <laughs> like, it's it's absolutely nuts. And at first, when I first saw the building, I thought, you know, like obviously it's more Middle Eastern. Yeah, it was made yeah, by yeah. the LDS Church. I don't really know what they were doing. That's weird, bro. So what, it was just like this huge bathhouse type thing. You could swim and all these different activities. Yeah. So it was built to be a resort. And so if you're looking at the photo right there, it, it had slides that would go into the water. I mean, the, the thing was built on stilts out in the water. And what was hard to keep the business going or to, or to keep this resort going is that the lake fluctuates so much. Mm. It's such a harsh environment. It eats away at all your building material. And then people kept lighting it on fire. 
<laughs> and that doesn't help. <laughs> no, that I mean that wasn't anticipated in the business model. <laughs> so flying over the Great Salt Lake, and uh, I'm ten miles out from where I launched, ten miles away from the road. So everything around it is is salt flats, and it looks like it'd be passable land, but the salt flats have a crust of salt on top, and then the rest is mud. Many people have tried to drive their vehicles out there. You will get your vehicle so incredibly stuck. Does it just fall through like it's, the crust? It's like sinking sand. So you go into the mud. <laughs> worse than sinking sand, you go into the mud, and the mud just holds on to you. And so it's crazy. Flying over the salt lake, I've seen airplanes, trucks, axles. Like uh, There's a crane out there. Like There is so much abandoned infrastructure and abandoned equipment out there. It's absolutely wild. And so I'm flying over this area, and, and, and that's really the only way to explore the Great Salt Lake is to fly it. So I'm flying over, and I see this board in the corner of my eye. I'm probably like a few hundred feet in the air, and, there's a, and I'm a kiteboarder as well, so I recognize really quick there's a kiteboard on the beach. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. And I, I swoop down. I take a look at it. I can see it from the air. So I end up landing and walking over to this board, and it's like almost – like relatively new um, ocean rodeo kite board and I'm pumped I'm like oh yeah sweet I got a board and then my like morality kicks in like, oh I better like figure out who this belongs to and it has a phone number on it so I end up calling the fella who had his name and his number on the board he doesn't answer I didn't leave a message because I wasn't super eager to give it back <laughs> But you tried, dog. And that's yeah, but now part. that I say it out loud and in front of the public, now I feel kind of bad about it. <laughs> and then um, you called, he answered, and said, you just have it, right? No. Yeah, that's, yeah, what that's, yeah, yeah. that's what he said. If you're a listener, I apologize, and I do have your board. Um, <laughs> the second thought that goes through my mind is like, what happened to the kite boarder? True. His board, so his board's there, and there's no kiter, and so I flew It's around. stuck into the mud? Or it's it just been, like it had been drifting in the water mm-hmm. and, and just washed up on the beach. It was like prior to having some pretty heavy north winds. And so somebody had just had a bad day. So I went and flew around. And, and there's no one around. Like you can't see anyone standing there. Yeah. No, no way, no how. So I end up flying around and looking for like a kite or a person or something like that. And uh, there, were, there was nothing. So I end up, I'm on the ground, I've landed. I get some rope and I tie a rope and I make a loop and I position the loop just so because it, it's it's salty so the the rope is pretty firm. I position the loop vertical so that like I could come down and snag it with my foot. And you can slow these paramotors down to like 14 miles an hour so you can get pretty slow. Um, so the rope has a loop. It's tied to the board. And I fly down and snag it with my foot and yank that board up and took it home. Dude, that's <laughs> wild. <laughs> that's something out of a movie. Yeah. Didn't you say you're in the air and it's just like, <laughs> like behind you? <laughs> if you want to talk aerodynamics, it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. Literally like seconds from crashing because it's just like vibrating violently. and Even at 14 miles an hour. Even at 14 <laughs> miles an hour, it was a rough 14. You just have a <laughs> sail tied to your leg essentially. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it's not something I want to do often. That's funny. Uh, the coolest place. Have you guys ever been down to Factory Butte? I know Charlie has. I took him camping oh, yeah. there. 
Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was super memorable. Eh? Uh, Caneville, Factory Butte. It's for those of you who are like in the motorsport world, Ken Block did this big in his uh, Ford Escort, did this big sidewall berm. Basically, Caneville, Factory Butte is set up like a bunch of natural ramps all over the place. It is nuts. Uh, maybe Charlie can pull up a photo. But yeah, that's the coolest place I've ever flown. Just a ton of terrain to go see. That's sick. Yeah, that's it. So in the motorsports world, this area is huge. I mean, guys, that one photo that that you pulled up where it's just this big natural ramp, not man-made, there's fellas who have jumped it on their dirt bikes. Wow. And they've put base jumping rigs on. So Bradley Sums is the one to do it most recently, and he hit it, jumped it, throws his parachute, and then he has a tagline with a parachute on his bike. <laughs> so there's just double parachutes because he's just a lay person. Who's, Dude, I've seen that. I've yeah. seen that video. Yeah, I mean, he's a lay person who's, who's a rad dude, so he has to preserve his bikes. It's not like right. there's infinite yeah, yeah. factory money. So he's got this parachute <laughs> on his bike. and So we've gone out and power paraglided all this stuff, and it's just absolutely rad. That's sick. <laughs> Dude, I never heard of this place. You would have if you would have come camping with us a few weeks ago. <laughs> That's cool. Dude, all of southern Utah just has like all these crazy formations. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. And for those listening, a little bit of reference to Dom's the one who showed me the petroglyphs. So if you were listening a couple episodes ago, I talked about how I went canyoneering. And at the very end, there's these petroglyphs. And Dom pointed it out to me and, and showed me them. And they're like three figures. Two of them are small. And one of them is just this massive demon looking thing. <laughs> and so he, he, I mean, he's explored all down there. And it, yeah. You, so I'm born and raised in southern Georgia pretty much. Yeah. And Georgia is one big pine tree. I came out to Utah six and a half, seven years ago. And it's blown my mind. Absolutely blown my mind. I don't think I've stayed in a weekend in a long time. You can live here your whole life, and you will never see everything. It's absolutely awesome. Yeah. If you like outdoors, like Utah has its ups and downs or whatever, but if you like the outdoors, it is a pretty choice spot. <laughs> well, do you know any other state, or can you think of any other state that has as much diversity as Utah does, where like Salt Lake City is alpine, and then you, you start working your way down to high desert to all the way down to like Lake Powell area? Mm. Yeah, no. <laughs> maybe Oakland, kansas <laughs> yeah dude there's corn and corn corn <laughs> illinois no yeah california is pretty diverse but truth probably not as wide as utah like california doesn't have red rock but they have like i mean high desert and even still that's top two in the u.s mm. because yeah, I would so say, much i would say california is probably most comparable right yeah, yeah. Mm. cool all right well, Dom, we're, we're happy to have you. I am so incredibly pumped. I'm so <laughs> pumped. We're stoked, too. We're glad you're here. I've heard a couple of his stories tonight, and I'm excited for you boys to hear it as cool. well. Um, but yeah, let's get into this. What, we do, what we've been doing for a couple of weeks is on our Instagram, we've just asked people to send in questions for us, and you guys have rose to that occasion beautifully. So we'll get into some of those. Okay. Question time. Questions. And Dom, feel free to chime in on any of these questions as well. It won't be hard to chime in. I got to like help myself not speak. My wife, before I came on, told me, she goes, remember, it's their show, not yours. 
Okay, from Fancy Clown. <laughs> is there any good Mexican food over there? Bet. Or is California still second to the motherland? <laughs> uh, actually, Fancy Clown, I went to high school with them. Oh, dope. He's the dude, man. He's a cool guy. <laughs> I've never seen him not in a Pendleton top and Chuck Taylors. Dope. Every day. <laughs> for like the last 20 years. That's a man. look. It is. Dude, Mexican food, I am not good with Mexican food. The extent of my Mexican cuisine until I moved here when I was 20 was Taco Bell. Because there are no Mexicans in Hawaii, so there are no Mexican restaurants. <laughs> so, <laughs> so don't ask DJ. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'm I'm just gonna weigh in on this. Go for it. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. What about what about the uh, chicharron I gave you? Right oh, that's heading true. Down to the south, you know. That's true. What I will say is, like Utah, in no stretch of the imagination, is known for its Mexican food. And if you ask like the normal Utah person, like, "Yo, what's some good Mexican food?" They're gonna point you to one restaurant, and that's. Cafe Rio. Oh, no. <laughs> Bro, when I got here and I was like, all right, let's get some like Mexican food, they're like, oh, you gotta try <laughs> Cafe Rio. And so me and my sister, straight from California, went and got Cafe Rio. I took like two bites and I was like, what is this? <laughs> Dog dick of cafe or Mexican food. I don't know a girl who doesn't like Cafe Rio, but they don't ever get like the actual Mexican food is always just like salads, sweet pork salad. Yeah, sweet pork salads, but I don't know. Okay, so. California definitely has better Mexican food. It's not really even a debate. So what I'll say though is the Mexican food here, if it, if it's not Mex, it's not authentic Mexican food. It's like Utah's take on Mexican food, right? Yeah. And it's decent if you if that's what you're taking it as. However, there are a couple small hidden spots that like. That are good. Like, oh, these are brown people making my food here. Like this is actually good. Ordering in brown languages. And yes. <laughs> yeah. You got to get brown currency. You got to yeah. go to where they live. You got to go to where they live. Go to South Salt Lake. Find some carnicerias. Carnicerias don't don't kill me on that. <laughs> or there's the guy who just walks around all of Provo with his tamales, <laughs> selling tamales all day. <laughs> Bro, that dude is the man. And saved They're me good. so many times. They are good. Oh, I've lived yeah. on the complete opposite sides of Provo, like in the seven years I've lived there, and he shows up like every week. <laughs> He actually has you tagged, bro. Yeah. <laughs> He's running marathons. Joke's on you. He's actually your home teacher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the beginning, it was uh, cash or pesos only. <laughs> but now he has like Venmo and yeah, stuff. Yeah, he has so a square, dude. He oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, I don't have cash. He's like, oh, Venmo? Tango <laughs> square. <laughs> <laughs> he bitcoins when the market's good. Tango <laughs> Venmo. Uh, answer your question. No, California shits on Utah for Mexican food. <laughs> Next. Okay. From Biote.jpg, which Biote. state do you think has the scariest folklore? I don't know, Sean. You've been to every state <laughs> but seven of them. But two or three? Three of them. So I don't I don't know. I can't speak for Minnesota, Wisconsin, or North Dakota folklore. Uh, yet. They probably have the scariest. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you right now, Georgia. I was going to say Georgia, not Georgia, even because you're here. Georgia. So from Georgia, Georgia's got some scary stuff. All that stuff. No, no, let stuff. me tell you about Georgia. No, just go, <laughs> ahead, go ahead. School me. <laughs> no, no, tell us. I'm just kidding. Oh, man. So I was actually like in preparation to come here thinking about a few Georgian uh, like plantation slave stories. <laughs> My parents bought this house 
on what's called the Black's Plantation. Uh, whoa, bro. Whoa. <laughs> well, yeah. Is that no, where the whites are the slaves? <laughs> it was, so it was like, how messed up is this? It was a white family and their last name was the Blacks. But yeah, it was a plantation and uh, now it's a golf course. My parents got it, but they they figured out that it was, it was a plantation and the lady who was the lady of the house, her husband was nice to the slaves, but the story is she was super, super abusive to these slaves to the point of like, beating them, executing them. And so there is a ton of haunted stories that come from this area. Yeah. Georgia, what makes it terrifying? You have the whole slave era. Civil war. Civil war. So so many different things. Well, and a lot of racism for years and years and years and, and you know, all the way up almost to present time. You know, a lot of people think lynching has stopped or stopped a long time ago. And I mean, it continues. They they already had one this year. So it's what? Like, yeah. Oh, you haven't heard about that? No, yet? bro. Have you heard about that? Not the dude just jogging down the street, right? <laughs> That's my backyard, man. Oh, oh dang. Okay, I yeah. did hear about that. Yeah. So I mean, long story short, there's a bunch of facts that are you know misconstrued. But these these two white guys chased down this black kid who was jogging down the street and uh, and harassed him and then shot him. But it's it. That's not the story. You know, you want to dive into. That's not what we're here for. But it's just like that kind of good old boy mentality. Lynching, racism has carried on for so long that I'm whether you believe in ghosts or not. Like there is a lot of strong emotional feelings down there, and so there's an eeriness when you go there. Yeah, I feel like that kind of attitude and lifestyle kind of gives off almost like a energy, and I to an extent, I feel like it can like affect actual environment and that's where we have like some of those stories and that's like not stories and whatnot that's not even touching on places like savannah that are like well known to be haunted mm. oh yeah so like all over the place well there's a bar in savannah that i've been to that uh george washington once <laughs> visited that the same exposed brick that's in this bar they say george washington was in the same area had like breathing the same air around these these bricks Oh, so it's got memories. <laughs> big time, big time. We've talked about it before, and I think we called it fingerprints. Oh, yeah. Is um, the impression that events or people or just bad bad juju, good juju leave on a place. And Georgia, to me, is just like one big haunted house. <laughs> well, and how can you, you know, with some certain events that have happened in the past, how can they not? You know, you've, you've got areas where towards the end of uh, slavery, these plantation owners were like, all right, well, we're getting rid of our inventory, calling these humans inventory, and they marched them into the sea oh, and drowned no. them. It's like, how does something like that not leave an imprint on the area? For sure. Hmm. Bro, I feel way ignorant right now. Like, I didn't know any of that stuff. Well, that's because your Yankee education doesn't teach you anything about. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in California, dog. We learned about Pueblos and missions, and that, that's it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. That, like, where you, where you go to elementary school and, and middle school, like, yeah. my education was all about the Civil War and all about how the North was a little bit selfish. <laughs> Serious. That's great. My education was all about, like, the annexation of Hawaii. Which yours would be, yeah, that would be intense. Yeah. I think going along with, Maybe haunted places or states. Maybe like New Mexico, Arizona. Huh. I don't know. Any like, I'm thinking of like either like Southwest or like. Are you talking North. about where the Navajos are? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Natives or like East Coast with like colonial mm-hmm. times. Yeah. And, but I think that 
definitely you could categorize different states and different like types of paranormal. To me, some of the creepiest has got to be down in Louisiana mm. with all like the voodoo? voodoo and stuff like that. I definitely think like there's some creepy skinwalker stuff going on in Arizona, New Mexico, like around Four Corners area. I think Maine has some really creepy stuff going up Boston. there. Boston. Yep. I think it boils down to places what that have a lot you of the most history. Too. Yeah. yeah, what scares you? Wendigos, skinwalkers? Yeah. yeah. Bigfoot? <laughs> <laughs> when do you do, what do you do when you're scared of all of them? You know, you're screwed. <laughs> uh, stay in Utah. No. <laughs> kidding yeah i think it's just history rich areas yeah hmm. but good question thanks for that okay let's go with a couple more from j4kp4k oh shout out <laughs> how do you find creepy places to explore my guy the internet <laughs> i was actually thinking about this earlier when i first moved to utah i was still like super hardcore into my exploring phase and a lot of it was just word of mouth, just talking to people. So I found one of the coolest places moving there that I actually went to a lot and painted at a lot when I first moved to Utah by talking to my barber. And I would always go to this guy who would cut my hair, and I don't know how it came up, but he was like, oh, yeah, there's an abandoned place like out in the desert near Goshen, near Santa Quinn. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, he's like, yeah, it's covered in graffiti. You should go out there sometime. And I spent like the next... I don't know, six months going out there every weekend, spray painting, telling ghost stories, stuff like that. Going out there in the middle of the night and you're in Eureka when it's just completely abandoned, yeah. bro. We have stories about all over that place. Yeah. But yeah, word of mouth is my favorite, but yeah, the cheap way is uh, Instagram or... Yeah. <laughs> Literally, you just ask people. Yeah. Locals will know, so... I liked like looking up on Reddit because like when I have gone and done solo traveling, I don't really talk to a whole lot of people. I like doing my own thing, <laughs> but I found like some dope stuff in Alaska when I went. I found some not dope stuff in London when I went, but that also I found some cool stuff after that. <laughs> but no, uh, both of those are great ways to find scary stuff. If you just ask the right questions to the right people. Dom found something in Utah. Which time? Do you think? <laughs> Is there, are you ready? No, but do you know what I'm talking about? No, not yet. The cave? That's my story tonight. Dude, Dope. I know. How'd you find, without like giving anything away, how did you find this place in Utah? Okay. Well, let me tell you. I uh, I got a four-wheeler. I was in college. I got this four-wheeler, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I pretty much replaced uh, girlfriends with the four-wheeler. <laughs> and, As um, you do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, so going to school, the mountains were right behind it, and I would just truck my four-wheeler all over the place, and I would jump on my four-wheeler and go up into the mountains any trail I could find. And there's this road that went on the foothills of the mountains, and I would ride that road forever and ever and ever and stumbled upon this mine shaft. <laughs> and the mine shaft was like, it was crazy because it was tucked back in the hills. It was ways away from town. And uh, it had like those old mine carts oh, like on the outside yeah. where they were still on the tracks. Like it, this had been abandoned for you know, 30, 40 years. And on the outside of the mine, it's it's all barred up, and it says, danger, do not enter, toxic gas. Oh. And I was like, oh, please come in, is what it <laughs> said to me. I mean, it, it was crazy. And so that started a five, four-month process of me going up there all the time and exploring it. Dang, dope. dope. So just exploring, Just go too. outside, dude. <laughs> okay, last question we got here is from underscore teeny online. Shout out, teeny. 
Shout out. Okay. Do you feel your relationship to the higher power gives you a sixth sense of evil or makes you susceptible? Huh. So is he saying, do you think it like helps you or makes you more susceptible? I think he's asking, like, does it help you to like kind of have that awareness and connection or do you feel like it also helps you be more susceptible to whatever forces those are? My honest answer is both. Both? Yeah. I feel like spiritual people, people who are like of that mindset, both might have protection against it, but because they're aware of it, it makes them susceptible, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you if you were someone who just completely ignored all supernatural things, all demonic things, I feel like it kind of passes you over yeah. because your lack of belief gives it zero power. Right. I don't know. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I feel like... It could be both, but it also depends on the person because like for me, I feel like the being aware makes me less susceptible because I'm aware of the things that have happened, the stories that have been told, and at this point, I kind of give no Fs. So (laughs) like at that point, I'm like, maybe it's because of that that I don't feel like I'm as susceptible as maybe someone else who doesn't want to talk about or doesn't have that connection to a higher power. It's almost like like there's a frequency that all spiritual correspondence happens on. For me, I'm super dulled out to that frequency. So there's not really many haunted stuff there that's like getting to me, but also like the good stuff doesn't get to me either. Um, I believe in it all, 100%. However, I'm just, I'm pretty dull to it. I feel and we've talked about it before. It's just a matter of like you giving it power over you in a sense. But I also kind of think you should never tempt it or challenge it as well. Yep, yep. We have a story. One of Kevin's friends who became a Christian, and I don't care what church you're from, support and love all of them, but he became a Christian later on in his life, right? And the day he got baptized, he just felt so good. He's on such a high all day, right? He has everyone around him who he loves, and he's made this really big decision to show his devotion towards a higher power and you know, show outwardly his willingness to change. And he goes home, and he's alone. He's in his room. He's just so happy, and he thinks. I actually think he says it out loud to himself. He's like, man, I'm so happy that Satan doesn't have power over me anymore. <laughs> Oh, I'm scared for him. (laughs) And no sooner do those words leave his mouth that his entire body locks up and his whole vision becomes black and he audibly hears in his ears, I still have power over you. And he prays and prays and prays and slowly it lets go and he's able to get up. But it's just a small illustration of like, yeah, <laughs> you might think you have the tools to protect yourself and prepare, but I also personally don't suggest you ever directly challenge anything yep. or invite it in your life. Bad idea, yep. So turn this podcast off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> don't, please. <laughs> Any yeah. thoughts, Deej? No, like uh, like Dom said, uh, I think they all exist on the same like frequency. So if you're tapped in, you're going to get both sides at one point or another, whether you invite it or not. Yeah, I think it's inevitable. Yeah, because like the people who I know who are like, ah, that's 100% BS. It's like they don't really have experiences in their life for the most part, right? And then the people who are believers seem to have experiences. And I don't think it means it's real or not. I just think it's like what they're tuning into. Well, if you, and if you look, if you read into some Bible verses and whatnot, 
they'll talk about a change in a person's body prior to seeing something that's more divine or not of this plane. Mm. They'll say their their eyes, do they have eyes to see, ears to hear? Or like in the case of like Moses, prior to seeing God, he was changed physically. Mm. There is a physical aspect to seeing a you know, what's beyond what we can just like see physically. Interesting. This is a good question. Some thought provoking. All right. Now we roll our 20 sided die to determine the order of which we tell our stories. Highest goes first and so on. I rolled a 17. Go ahead, dude. Oh, I'm, I'm pumped for this. First of all, what is a 20 sided die for? Bro, we nerds <laughs> here, dog. So deep cut behind the scenes. We played Dungeons and Dragons for a couple of years, yeah. a couple of years ago, and you use a 20-sided die. Okay, so I had a more harsh opinion on Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> until playing Werewolf and then or Mafia, and then someone explained to me, it's like, oh, well, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons is just a more intricate version of Mafia or Werewolf. I'm, I'm in, yeah. man. Count, call me your dungeon master, <laughs> and I'm, I'll do it. Yeah, it, it does have a super nerdy negative connotation. And actually, in the 80s, Dungeons & Dragons was way... What's the word where they like campaign against it? Ostracized. Yeah. It was seen as like cultish and demonic almost. It was seen as the gateway drug to the occult. And so they said, they, I'll show you whole campaigns they put out on the internet or TV back then. They'd broadcast it out. It was like, if you find Dungeons and Dragons in your kid's room, that's their gateway to like the occult and they're worshiping Satan. You so, got Dungeons and Dragons, Ouija board, Satan. <laughs> that's that how it order. goes, yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. I, I just remember hearing about it like on like Saved by the Bell. You remember those like the nerdy guys yeah. like, oh, he plays Dungeons and Dragons. Screech. And I remember I was like, I was like, oh no, I don't play that. I like girls. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, with the help of like just like Stranger Things and different like shows that have become super popular, like I feel like people have it's blown up. Yeah, it like piqued their interest and then they look into it a little more, and now it's a little more normal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's definitely not what it was in the eighties. But if so. you have a good group of friends and you have a good imagination, it can become the most fun thing in the world. It's so fun and hilarious. But anyway, that's why we have dice. My heart's <laughs> open to it. So DJ rolled eight. And got an eight. What'd you get? I got an eight as well. Oh. Go ahead. Three? Three. So Charlie rolled and got a three. What is that? 14. Roll again, Dom. Oh, rolled a 20. Got him. I'm the dungeon master now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the order is? Sean. Well, the order we're sitting in. Yep. Sean, Dom, me. Coincidence? I think not. Oh, (laughs) awesome. (laughs) This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. I have benefited from therapy in a way that it's allowed me to feel a lot more light, lightness in my heart, my head my emotions, if that's something that you are needing, if that's something that's missing, uh, give therapy a try. Give BetterHelp a try. Uh, We want to hook you up um, by getting it off your chest Uh, and it be a little lighter on the wallet. Uh, Go ahead and visit betterhelp.com slash 3am 
and you can get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 3 a.m. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Got a story for you guys. It's pretty spooky. <laughs> well, good. That's why we're here, yeah, dude. dude. Remember when we, when we used to be like, so you got a story tonight? Anybody have a story tonight? <laughs> that's, how we would start our, that's how we would start our podcast, like the first few episodes. And we just kind of guess who went first. <laughs> Wait, I have a question. When you share stories, and I should know this, being the longtime listener that I am. When you share stories, do you share them consecutively? Or do you share one story and then someone else shares another and then you'd share the second one that you had? Oh, we usually like Sean goes until he's out. Yeah. Okay. That's that's all I got. <clears throat> all right. So I was doing a little bit of searching for some haunted house stories because the last story I told that went on the bonus app about a haunted Japanese house. Mm-hmm. Got me thinking. I was like, you know, let me let me try and find some more. So I found another one. It's from this guy who buys kind of a pretty cheap house because he's going to work on it, build it out, stuff like that. Stateside? Yep, stateside. Now, he bought it pretty cheap apparently because of the history of the house. Now, I'll let you guys be the judge on whether or not you buy a house with this kind of history. But uh, apparently the older lady that lived there passed away. In the house. She had three kids. One of the kids also passed away in this house. One of the kids, this old lady was caught trying to lock them in the basement, and they were taken away by child services. I'm out. (laughs) And then the third one, they don't know about. They didn't want to have any contact. They didn't want to, like, have anything to do with this old lady. Hence, this house is super cheap now. So, he buys the house thinking he's got a steal of a deal, and... He knows his history. He knows the history. But he's like, oh, whatever. It's whatever. It doesn't yeah. face him. Yeah. It's the, it's the price tag that got him. So he comes in. He starts like remodeling the house, taking up the carpets, putting down floorboards, doing repaint, stuff like that. And there are a couple different bedrooms in the, in the house. And he gets to the point where he's finished signing kind of the main areas or has gotten well enough along on these that he starts to work on the bedrooms and decide which one is going to be his bedroom. So he chooses the bedroom, starts working on it, and then as he's doing like the paint job within this room, he gets to the closet area and notices for the first time, which I think also is a little strange, that this closet has a deadbolt on it. I don't know why you would have a deadbolt on a closet, and this is kind of what he's thinking as well. So like the closet door has that lock where you turn it in that metal bolt? Yep. Okay. I guess... That's a little strange. You don't want anyone to get your your suits or <laughs> shoes if you keep them in your closet. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe grandma collected Jordans or something. Hey, she's probably into that. <laughs> but he's like, okay, this is a little strange, but it doesn't really kind of occur to him that like maybe some shit was going down. He unbolts it, opens the door, and the first thing he sees is on the backside of this door. There if pieces- you say claw marks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose it. On the back side of this door, there's scratch marks. 
<laughs> hey guys, it's been fun. I'm going. <laughs> Damn it, Sean. <laughs> and he notices that these scratch marks are about two to four feet above the ground. So what he thinks obviously is from a child. And knowing the history as well of this older lady trying to lock her kid in the basement is like, okay, that's probably what happened. He kind of concludes that it's a child. It wasn't like a dog or anything like that. It was definitely a child. But the reason he bought this super cheap house is because he's also pretty broke. And he decides he's not going to allocate any funds towards buying a new door. And he's just going to leave it the way that it is. Dude, this guy (laughs) does not care. (laughs) The thing is, is like, will you buy this house? Or it's like, would you buy this house if it's blah, 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 blah. But I stop at the butt part. (laughs) Like, that's where I'm like, no, uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. If you start the story, the realtor is like, oh, it's super cheap. This old lady, ah, out. Yeah, no, yeah, it's like once you hit the butt, you're done. I wouldn't Uh, have even got to the claw marks on the door. (laughs) But anyways, he fills in the scratch marks and then starts painting over the door so that like it's less visible scratch marks at very least and just kind of goes on with his life. Now, one night, a week or two later, he's working in the kitchen area, kind of doing like the countertops and stuff like that. And he notices that this kind of stereo that he has like tuned to a radio station, he's blaring some music and then all of a sudden it goes staticky. He's like, well, I can't really do much about it tonight. I'll just bring my iPod tomorrow. It was in the time of iPods. So he just kind of turns it off, keeps working. And then he hears kind of a noise come from down the hallway and he stops what he's doing and peers down the hallway, notices that the at the end of the hallway is the room that he's chosen to be his and the one that had the scratch marks on this closet door. <laughs> and he looks all the way down the hallway, and he notices the door, the closet door, uh, his bedroom door is open. He sees into the room, and inside the room, that closet door is now open. And he distinctly remembers closing it. So he thinks it's kind of strange. He kind of walks a little bit towards it. And the bathroom light that's also on the outside of the bedroom is shining a little bit of light into the room. And instantly, as he starts getting a little bit closer, he sees a figure standing right beside the door. Just a dark figure. And he says, at this very moment, he had just a panic come over him. He didn't go look at it. He dropped his things, ran out of the house, and luckily he had his keys with him because he said he wasn't going to go back into the house. He gets in the car, turns the car on, and starts driving away. And he just has this f- feeling of panic still over him. He has no idea what to do. And he's driving. He, he says he realizes that he's speeding, going 100 miles an hour just on these like country roads, and just in a panic stops. And as he stops, he hears like, a bunch of stuff in the back of his car clank against the back seat. And he remembers that he had taken a bunch of this stuff from the house to pawn off on eBay and stuff like that. And in the same panic, he just gets out of the car, opens the back door, and just starts taking the stuff and throwing it out into this field. And once he's thrown everything out of the back of his car into this field, he closes it. He starts to kind of feel okay. And okay as in, like, not panicked. He's probably able to breathe, and then he starts heading back to the house. And he says as he gets closer and closer to the house, he feels like this panic is starting to go away. 
And by the time he gets to the house, that feeling is gone. And he's like, I don't know if I'm just like able to logically think at this point. There's no way I'm staying in this house. I'm going to sell it. Like, F it. I don't care. So he gets back to the house and he goes back in. And at this point, he said he felt like there was a good feeling. He was now welcomed in this house. Hmm. And he finished his story saying that he ended up living in this house for three years and didn't experience anything else. So what items did he throw in the field? He didn't say. Yeah, dude. It sounds like he got rid of something <laughs> that he needed to get rid of in that house. That's it's weird that just because of that action, the whole energy changed. Yeah. And the, like, the fact that he was like not even thinking about it, he was just doing, mm. he got lucky, dude. There's no other explanation. I don't know. There were scratch marks on the back of a closet door. He was... Uh, he did also say that he got rid of the door. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good <laughs> I didn't I had zero sympathy when you said he just painted some paint over these. Well, he nail first marks. he filled it in and then painted over it's it. Like at least sand it, you lazy <laughs> bastard. I also had zero remorse for when he ran out of the house and drove off cuz you ignored like every warning sign. So. Yeah. I mean, he definitely ignored the scratches in the door. He ignored the butt about the house. Yeah, no butts. <laughs> but at least he had that the wherewithal to GTFO. Mm. Like, if there's a dark figure in the house, like, hell no, I'm getting out of there. Well, are you the type of person who would be excited or terrified to find out your house has a colorful history like that? And when I say colorful, I mean dark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the kind of person that... Would like that to be in other people's homes, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> yeah. I also am under the impression, you guys can tell me if you think different, that uh, these entities, ghosts, aren't out there to torment you. Rather, they're just keep, they just keep like Groundhog Day, reliving the traumatic experience that they once had. Mm. I'd say for a lot of the cases, it's probably something like that. But then a lot of the stories we end up hearing are ones where that entity has become like pissed off. It's in Groundhog's Day and just starts like messing with people. Yeah, I got no patience for that. <laughs> What's the saying like uh, sorrow enjoys company or something like that? What is it? Misery loves company. I do believe in malevolent spirits. And in fact, I have some stories about some. <laughs> like ones that their intention is to make pain. your life painful. Yeah, cause okay. pain. But but I, I I think most things are probably benign and sort of just kind of yeah stuck on repeat. Well, and I that would help me understand the world a little bit better if that's how it was. Hmm. Like I I wish and I hope that's how it is. But if there's like these ghosts that are dead set on making your life miserable or like inflicting pain or killing, count me out, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's a big no for me, dog. <laughs> All right, everyone check the history on your damn houses before you. Check the house facts. Yeah. <laughs> and, and have that ground inspected. Indian burial, burial grounds, real thing. I, I don't know who checks for that kind of thing, but uh, <laughs> no way, no how. Yeah. My dad works in construction. I mentioned this before, but they do aquascaping. So like all the pools and waterfalls at like all the different resorts in Hawaii and probably like every other or every third project they do, they run into like a burial ground. Like ancient Hawaiian burial ground. But the Hawaiians are so peaceful. Like, <laughs> you, I mean, you, you kick it up. You just wake up to like feelings? shaved ice in the morning. 
Freshly Some cut Aloha pineapple. Brothers, yeah. oh, a dull whip. Fuck, bro, just don't do that again. <laughs> yeah, just like, watch where you're walking and you'll be good. <laughs> it's, it's cool, bro. It's cool. It's cool. Shaka Mahalo. Yeah. If you're going to get a ghost, get a Hawaiian ghost. <laughs> Polynesian ghost, yeah. the best variety. They'll feed you, bro. Yeah. <laughs> They'll take care of you. They got an extra bed. You come back to a fafanga, yeah. a feed. <laughs> that's crazy, bro. Is that, that you? That's me, dude. Thank I mean, you, Sean. I mean, Dami boys up. That's right. Um, so the question was, how do you find scary places to explore? Was that it? Yep. Yep. So the story that I was telling, I got this four wheeler, and I'm in the foothills somewhere in central, not central Utah, northern Utah, somewhere in northern Utah. And I stumble upon this mine. And uh, let me paint a picture for what this mine looks like. For one, old infrastructure has me hyped. I love it, especially mining infrastructure. This place had, it was like a a little bit of a building that came out of the mountain. And then when you looked into like the front entrance to this building, that was the mine shaft. Had a big steel gate in the front of it with the warning sign and a skull and crossbones. That said, danger, do not enter poisonous gases. Water was flowing out of the mine, um, probably two to three inches of water flowing out of the mine. But there was also a rail, like a, not a railroad, but like for rail carts, a rail system coming out of the mine. And it came out of the mine and around the corner down the trail and it went to this other like refinery house where they refined ore and whatnot. So I first find this mine shaft and I'm all by myself. And um, whoever, you know, you know how kids are, like kids find their way into these things. So someone had come in with a pickaxe and like picked away at the dirt to get behind or the dirt and the rock to get behind the bars into this mine shaft. One of our friends has a saying. (laughs) What was it? If there's a place you're not supposed to be in, there's always a way to get in. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's what this place looked like. Um, it Shout out, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me that that busted my way in, uh-huh. but uh, yeah, I promise. But uh, the word so, we like to use a lot here is allegedly. <laughs> allegedly, I went. So allegedly, uh, I found my way inside this this mine shaft all by myself, and it's long time been abandoned at this point. So I'm going to tell you what I knew at that time. Okay, and it's that it looked like it'd been 40, 50 years. Dope. I go in, and as soon as I get into this mine shaft, there's another rail cart that's on the rails. Just old-timey rail cart for iron ore, right? And I push it, and it moves. Like, it's oh. moving on the rail. Like, this is something out of Donkey Kong. Yeah. <laughs> and I am pumped. And uh, I don't have any equipment, nothing with me, and I'm still worried about that sign on the outside that says poisonous gases. Because a lot of times, what will happen in mine shafts is if you have, like, a water flow like that, uh, with an algae that's growing, the algae will consume all the oxygen, uh, and you'll so find you can your, like go into a vacuum or something. You'll find yourself with oxygen deprivation. Hmm. So a lot like the symptoms of like hypoxia, you'll just be you'll just slowly get tired and pass out, and then you're dead. So I'm like thinking, how, what am I gonna do? I want to explore this mine shaft. So I like sat myself in the cart and pulled myself with a rope because there was like a, a cable system that went through the the shaft into the abyss. I pulled myself on the rope, and my idea was like, if I passed out, 
I could just, or if I got weak, I could pull myself out. And I was stupid because it took so much more energy to pull yourself in this cart. <laughs> this so feels like Indiana Jones, dude. It <laughs> felt like Indiana Jones. It was wild. It is the coolest thing, um, especially growing up in Georgia where, like, I didn't grow, it was flat ground. I didn't grow up around mine shafts or anything like that. So I end up going into the shaft and I'm going as deep as I dare go. And the further you go down the shaft, I mean, there's old lanterns that are hanging on the wall, like where they used to use like fire, like candlelight, oil light to, to see. I stumbled up, like across some old helmets. There was a part where part of the shaft had collapsed and it was a bunch of coal, like just coal in the wall, like big blocks of straight up coal. I'd never seen iron, like an ore like that. I went down, I don't really know how deep, probably like quarter mile before I got nervous. You know, it's like in your head, you think there's poisonous gases. So you're like, oh, I'm out of here. So I turned around. I kept going back for months after that. And I'd bring people up with me and I brought equipment. I started bringing um, an O2 meter so like I could monitor my oxygen. It ended up being fine the whole time. But during my time going up to this mine, I did a lot of research on it. And it consumed me. This one mine consumed me. So I want to tell you a little bit about the history of this mine. This mine is called the Dream Mine. And it's in a... uh, Should I say the town? Say it. I'll bleep it. Okay. It's in Utah. And um, this is the story of John Hiram Coyle back in the 1890s. So this guy, John Hiram Coyle, who is a member of the... LDS church um, when he was a young boy and th- and this is super interesting to me when he was when Coyle was young he was uh, raised in Spanish Fork and he'd had experiences with visions and he'd had a vision of one of his cattle something where the cattle had been injured and one of its horns was poking it in the eye or something like that like a broken horn poking it in the eye and the angelic visitation told him, hey, you need to go rescue this cattle. You're about to lose this cattle. And uh, John responds to that call of his of his cow, and it ends up being completely legit, and he rescues his cow. So like people knew that John could see a little bit more and, w- and was speaking with divinity. I have here that August 27th, 1984, he has a dream. And in this dream, this angel named Moroni visits him. And the angel Moroni tells him that there is Nephite gold. The Nephites being a group of people who used to live in ancient America. There is Nephite gold hidden in this hidden chamber in the mountain near Salem. And that John was chosen to find this gold so that he can rescue the church, the LDS church, in a time of economic crisis. And John answers the call. Now, he was a bishop at the time, a bishop for the church. So he had a congregation, a flock that he was um, in charge of. And he tells his congregation, he says, I've had a vision. And the angel Moroni, who is well known in, in the church as being, um, being an actual, actual being that once lived, he says, I've had a vision and there's all this gold in the mountain, like in the billions dollars worth of gold. And that we need to invest our money <laughs> to go get it. And the church goes, yep, I'm in. And so they start um, they start mining it. Was this before or after the Saltaire? Oh, man, I have, I have no <laughs> well, idea. What, what date was that? 
So this is 1984. Then that after, he had the dream. Likely after. Uh, no, no, no. 19, 1894. Sorry. I was going to oh, say, okay. that's recent. Bro. I know. <laughs> sorry. 1894. So that was 1894? Yeah, August 27th, this, 1894. The Saltaire looked like it was 1893. What? So the church is like trying to okay, get yeah. their hands oh, on all sense. these. They built yeah. the Saltaire to try and boost the economy. Yeah. So they must have been like, I don't so, know. So stuff. industry industry was was booming, but I'm just reading a couple facts here really quick for you guys. The angel Moroni in this vision showed him nine caverns full of treasure, including, and if you know what these are, awesome. If you don't, it's no big deal. Including the sword of Laban, the Urim and Thummim, and some gold plates. So those are pretty uh, famous his, uh, historical relics for the LDS church. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A like, lot of meaning. <laughs> definitely. And so this, uh, the, his congregation and other people who, who were around him or knew of John, they all start pitching in and buying in, and their shares. Now there's all the, like, this is, this is becoming a mining company overnight. And uh, they start doing it. So on September 17th, 1894, they start excavating. 42,000 shares were sold. Uh, at the time, they were sold to the public for a dollar fifty, which is like <laughs> a good amount of money back in the 1800s. You know, there's a few names, and I'm going to leave these names out because they were like high up in the church at the time, like apostleship that bought in shares, that bought shares. It was crazy. <laughs> but in 1913, so this had been going on for a while, and again, they hadn't found the gold yet, but they hadn't found anything. In 1913, um, one of the big leaders and apostles of the church, his name was James E. Talmadge. He was also a geologist. He goes to this mine and he does a, a survey and then comes out with an official statement, which is so crazy to me, like the magnitude of this. But uh, I want to read to you this statement that comes from the church against this bishop who had had this dream. And it's, it's super fiery. It says, the first presidency warns the saints against investing in worthless stock. Even if promoters allege that they are guided by dreams and revelations, almost everyone has heard stories of how such and such has found a rich mind by following directions given in a dream. Many fondly hope for similar luck, but in most instances, it will be found on investigation that such stories have little or no foundation in fact. That was a direct... That was a direct statement from the church. And like for that time in the 1800s in Utah, that was government. Church is government. And so John shortly after gets excommunicated and they never found anything. They didn't find anything in the mine. But they had like dug a ton of stuff, right? Yeah. So this mine shaft is different from a lot of other mine shafts in that they dug in horizontal into this mine. And then they dug tunnels in all different directions, spidering, and some tunnels just end because they just got tired and they, they thought they were going in the wrong direction. They quit. I mean, they were desperately searching for something just to prove that this was a... Not, not a waste of money. <laughs> 100%. And at the time, to just prove to the church, like, hey, I'm not crazy. Like, we're, we're actually doing something. I, I'm sure it would help if they were like, well, yeah, we haven't found the Nephite gold yet, but we have found silver, so we're going yeah. to keep digging. If he actually believed in this, then this was his lifeline to stay in. And it sounds like he was desperately holding on to it. So prior to his excommunication, the church asked him to come up to Salt Lake City. 
And uh, they say, hey, we're going to excommunicate you if you don't make an official statement and say that your dream was a lie. Your, your dream was not real. And um, he ends up signing the statement and getting it notarized. It was like, hey, it was all a lie. I made it all up. He gets back home and then he goes, no, they forced me to say that. And the church excommunicates him at that point. He dies a year later. And the mine goes um, stagnant for about 20 years. After that, at that point, 20 years later, the mine gets reopened by a group uh, of supporters of John. And they renamed the mine the Relief Mining Company. So all those who had shares in the original mine, those shares were maintained. And then they sold a few more shares. And the Relief Mining Company hits it hard and starts excavating and looking for more, looking for this Nephite gold. I forget who it was, but someone, a friend of John's or a relative, has a vision, another vision, and the angel Moroni comes again. And he says, you guys are close, but you need to dig down. And so they're way in the mine, and they start digging a shaft downward 900 feet. Holy cow. They get 900 feet down to this capstone, and the capstone was a different consistency than any of the rock around it, and it broke all their drills, and they couldn't get through it. And the water was flowing in too fast for them to pump it out, and that halted the operation. The angel Moroni comes again to the same person and says... The Nephite treasure is just below the capstone. That's where the chamber is. The Relief Mining Company runs out of money, can't afford to keep pumping the water out, and doesn't have the bits to get through this capstone. It was, it was too hard. And the mine has been stagnant ever since. So the last time that that mine was operational was 19... 60 when they finally figured out like we can't keep digging anymore so from 1960 all the way till this was when i was there 2015 i mean that's the span so i'm there 2015 and i start exploring this mine all the time and i find the shaft that goes down and besides finding a bunch of other weird stuff down there that was just pretty cool like old relic stuff what do you mean? I just, like, relic's the wrong word, like old. Like the helmets and stuff. Yeah, like mining that. infrastructure. I'm, they'd, they'd put a lot of food there in the 60s. So there was a lot of fruit that was preserved, canned preserves, mason jars, corn, coal. Like there was, it was cool. It had just been sitting there. What is that thing in holes, the peaches? Splooge. Oh, Splooge. <laughs> it looked like that. So it was just or sploosh. Sploosh. Splooge is something different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there could have been some of that down there too. Uh, but it, anyway, I find the the shaft, the vertical shaft that goes down. And um, the talk was at the time I had me and a few buddies and we were going to rappel into it and go down. We'd thrown stuff down there and you could hear it like it, rocks that we'd throw down there would fall a long way and then hit the water. We, I did some digging, and I actually ended up getting a map of the area. I couldn't tell you where it is now, but I got a map of the area and then drew my own map from where I'd explored. And in the beta that I'd found on this area, they said that 300 feet of it is exposed. So it's a 900-foot direct hole, and 300 feet of it is still open to air. So six is water? Seven. Oh, Holy damn. Five, no, 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 900. So, yeah, you're right, yeah, six. six. Um, yeah, so 600 feet of water. 
And I'd had buddies that were like, well, we'll get scuba tanks and we'll go. And I drew the line there and I was just, I was just like, I mean, even if you do go down there and you, you, what are you going to do? You're going to get the knock on it. Stone. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe you'll get visited by an angel and figure out how to get through it. When you are an angel, cause you're dead. <laughs> you're gonna, yeah. You're going to die. Um, but it was just, it was so crazy to see how much went into this based on a dream. And I'm not like, part of me wants to believe it. I actually really, really want to believe it that it really is true and that it's the real deal. But you look at it, and especially this one shaft that goes all the way down, like it had a crane and like there was a ton of infrastructure there, like a steam-driven crane to lower people down into the shaft. It was just, it was the craziest thing ever. What's more crazy is as I did more research, I realized that the Relief Mining Company is still alive and will and is still selling shares. What? Yeah. So between the years of 2010 and 2015, the value of stock increased from $10 a share to 35 and oh, was increasing. Dang. And I haven't checked it now, but with the like onset of COVID, who knows? That's nuts, bro. Boys, let's invest, dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I ought to take you guys to it. That'd be sick. I haven't been in a long time. Yeah, Dom said he will take us to this place. So I'm down. Bro, it sounds like Oak Island. Have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah. I watched a documentary on it. Yeah, bro. Just like all the booby traps and stuff. What is that? So it's like an island up in Nova Scotia, Canada or something. something like that. Where allegedly like some pirates or some group hid their treasure on this island and like dug a deep hole to hide it and then booby trapped it. And people have been trying to excavate the hole and have like water is filled in on them and killed them or other random booby traps have just like killed the people that have tried to dig through it. So like it's kind of sketch. So speaking of water and booby traps, I got another one if you're ready. Yeah. Oh, let's go. All right. All right. So have you heard of the curse of Montezuma's treasure? Heard of Montezuma? Haven't heard of the curse of his treasure. Same. Heard of his revenge. Ooh. Is that like a dish at a Mexican restaurant? Yeah. I, I've heard of Montezuma's revenge, but it's something different. Montezuma's revenge is when you have the runs. Yeah. That's and you're throwing up at the same time. So double dragon. So like every Wednesday or uh, Saturday for me. Yeah. Well, Deej just told my story. That's it. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, dude. Was no, that it? Oh. No, that's okay. not it. I thought you were, you're like, that's the last time I have him on. <laughs> um, all right. So again, I love exploring Utah and um, Utah has a lot of hidden treasure all over it. So Montezuma was a king, and I'm going to butcher this, Aztec. I'm pretty sure he was Aztec. That sounds right. Uh, no one comes to us for facts, so you're good, Doc. Well, I'm just like, I know someone's going to fact check you guys <laughs> and just be like, that guy didn't know anything. <laughs> anyway, um, Montezuma is this Aztec king in now Mexico City. And during the time of conquistadors, uh, 16th century. So during the time of conquistadors, who were coming in and pretty much raping and pillaging and then giving all these people diseases. Montezuma gathers all of his earthly possessions and treasures, which they say, and I don't know how they value this, but would have valued in the billions of dollars worth of gold. He takes 8,000 of his people, 8,000 of his men, and carries all his treasure, and they travel north from Mexico City northward. 
No one knows where they stop, but they end up stopping in an area that they feel is safe. And they come to this area and it's described as a river bend. And this river has high rocks, like sandstone rock walls on the side. And what they do is they divert the river away from one of the cliff cliff walls. And when it's dry, they start boring into the cliff wall and they build a chamber. And in that chamber, they store all of Montezuma's gold. And then they store it there and they divert the river back so the water now hides the chamber. It's called a water trap. As soon as they finish doing that, they all kill each other, all 8,000 of them, so that their spirits will forever protect the treasure. Yeah, I don't know what happens. No one knows what happens to Montezuma, but that these 8,000 kill each other, 8,000 warriors kill each other to preserve the gold. Um, Dude, that's dedicated. That's conviction, dog. Right? So people have, like, people have heard of this story for years and years and years and have been searching for Montezuma's treasure, which was believed to have been somewhere in southern Utah or Arizona. And they found these Aztec markings, Aztec-esque markings in a place called Kanab. You guys oh, ever been to Kanab? Yeah. So they find these markings in Kanab. And they end up identifying them as Aztec directional markings. And they find this place that matches the description of where Montezuma hid his treasure, water trap and everything. So this is like 30, 40 years ago, this gentleman purchases the land with the intention of excavating and finding Montezuma's treasure. Mm -hmm. He's a treasure hunter. He finds this land finds the water area, and they invest all this money into um, scuba gear to extract it. And they they pay scuba divers to go take a look at it, and the scuba divers dive in. And every time a diver went in the water, they you'd because they had intercoms, so I may be lying, made this 20 years ago, not 30 years ago, 20 years ago. The scuba divers go in the water, and they'd start screaming. And they'd say, I'm seeing ghosts, I'm seeing ghosts, I'm seeing ghosts. And they'd they'd come up. Another time, scuba diver would go in there and turn their their oxygen would get turned off just randomly. Um, so they're like, all right, well, we can't get divers in there, so we're going to send drones down there, underwater drones. Elon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? And I don't know what the technology was back then, but no drone could make it very far. Like, they would just, they would just uh, malfunction. So they could not get... Like and this is this took a lot of effort. They could not get anyone in the water to even see to even see like what was underneath the water and into the rock. So the guy goes, "All right, well, I'm gonna drill through the top of this rock." The idea is is that they could go above the water on top of the cliff edge, drill and bore all the way down, and if there was a chamber, they would be able to tell. So they hire a drilling company, and this guy starts. Whoever is the driller for this company starts drilling. And he reaches a void. And he, as soon as he hits the void, the drill drops really quick. And he stops the drill, pulls it up. And the drill comes up with gold flakes on it. No. And the drill, somehow, when it had gone through, and this is sandstone. And anyone who knows sandstone knows it's not that hard. No. But it, something had broke the drill bit. And so he goes, I've broken this bit. I'm going to go back. They're from Nevada. I'm going to go back to Nevada and get another drill bit, and we'll come back. He goes back to Nevada, dies of a heart attack. His <laughs> wife kept the bit, like, had power of attorney to keep running the business, and they're like, 
we're sorry for your loss. Can you keep drooling? And she's like, yeah. And then goes bankrupt, like immediately. Like something happened where they couldn't keep drilling and the business just... So this landowner is getting super frustrated at this point. He goes, all right, fine. I'm just going to drain the water. (laughs) We're just, we're going to redirect this river and we'll drain the water. And he gets ready to do it. And guess who shows up? Montezuma. (laughs) I'm just kidding. The EPA. Oh, oh, the biggest boogeyman. The Environmental (laughs) Protection Agency. (laughs) And they come out with this snail. And they say, this snail is an endangered species and only exists in like Mexico City area and right here. Right here. And apparently, (laughs) Canab. In Canab. And it's like, and if you kill one, it's $25,000 a snail if you end up killing one. And if you count all the numbers of snails that are like in that area, it adds up in the billions. The same evaluation as Montezuma's treasure. Which is like correlation. I don't know. I think just coincidence. But um, so he can't drain the water. So I went down here and I took a look at it and it is all fenced off. If you go on YouTube, you can find a news report. Like a lot of news stations have done reports on this Montezuma's treasure and you can fact check me on it. But I've been there and I've been outside the fence and I've looked at the water. It's probably because I know like what's going on, but it has a feeling to it. And eeriness. People have said that they've seen Aztec-like warriors at night, shadows of them protecting the area still. Dude, night marchers, bro. <laughs> them Ooh. desert marchers. It's, it's a wild area. But if it's true and you go down there and you stand on the edge of the fence, you are within 40 feet of billions worth of gold. Gosh, damn. And it's just a swim away. Well, gentlemen, I think we know what we're doing this weekend. <laughs> Who can Let's swim? Go. <laughs> Dude, next time we record, we're all just like dipped in gold. <laughs> we're like, hey, guys, <laughs> nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> Where to go? Yeah. All you got to do is reach your hand in and grab one nugget, and we're set yeah. for life. <laughs> for and real. permanently haunted. Bro, permanently. I feel like Montezuma would be chill with that. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, we're no. gonna tell his story. No. Especially, well, if we're there, he likes two us, token dude. brown no, dudes. I, so I thought that. <laughs> I thought that, and that's why I was brought down there in the first place. Is because they're like, you're gonna be our token brown dude. You go I in first. Up there, I was like, wrong brown people, wrong brown people. <laughs> dude, we need an Aztec dude. We need. Any, Aztec. got any Aztec homies? Aztec homies. Hey, if you're an Aztec out there, hit us up. Yeah, I, we I know. Need uh, you. We'll I have a good homie uh, from Peru. That counts. Do that okay, count? Not all the same. I, yeah, but uh, what is it? Machu Picchu are those Aztecs? That's, like, that's Mayans. They were warring. They were they were anti each They're, other. That was a bunch of groups, dude. Ignorant here. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what the Aztecs. though, if everything's true that I've heard about them, they were blood thirsty. Oh yeah, they're nuts. Sacrifices, live like sacrifices. Apocalypto. Yeah, Montezuma does not want to support the podcast. Does not want to support you. He's. Uh, I don't. I don't know, I don't dude. Know. He, he is a non-homie. I assure you. <laughs> you. Okay, you might be right. Anyway, that's it for me. That's a wild story, isn't it? And it's. I mean, it's one of those things. Like you can go there. I invite you to go there, and just feel what it feels like. Um, and if you're brave enough, jump the fence and go in at night. Well, our good friend Jake always said, <laughs> if you're not supposed to be in a place, there's a way in. You know. And it, with the news report that they did, there's so many people trying to get in. I, I think that that landowner, landowner has live security, but oh, oh, I'm okay. sure. Billions of dollars he's trying to protect. He can't even get to it. Huh. <laughs> wow. 
one of the first things I can remember researching when I was little. I remember I was probably nine or ten, and I was spending the night at a friend's house. We were telling scary stories, and the internet is like fresh. So we just like type in scary stories. <laughs> <laughs> and it took us to some janky website that I'm sure like took all our information. It gave you all the viruses. Yeah. Pornography instantly. It's like, <laughs> what are those people doing without clothes? Um, <laughs> but it, like the first thing we saw was the curse of Tutankhamun's tomb. Oh, yeah. And I remember being obsessed with it. And I like looked at him and all the deaths related to it. But that feels like very similar or just like same vein, you know? Does Tutankhamun, is there any, like, the only thing I know is from the Ben Stiller movie. Was it Night oh, at the Museum? Oh, yeah, Night at the Museum. <laughs> oh, that's it? That's all you need to know? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so apparently I know nothing. Uh, Tutankhamun, I'm not, maybe one day we'll do like a whole thing, but one thing I know is the pharaohs of the time were into pure blood. So they was all banging their sisters. And Tutankhamun was effed up like his spine was like this his head was all weird because he was like insanely inbred In- <laughs> yeah. he looked like an alien which probably added to the mythos of um, pharaohs <laughs> being aliens yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like no nah, that was just tutankhamun <laughs> the homie toot dude uh but he was buried with all his wealth because they believed you that's what you took to the afterlife so he, he has this insane amount of wealth and they find it in the 1800s and the the scientists like crack through and you know a dust cloud comes out. It's like very intense. He was buried with a dagger that was made from meteorite, which is dope. Um, but everyone related to that started dying like terrible deaths. Holy cow. Some of them, because they were like taking the, the archaeologists. Artif- right? Yeah, they're taking a lot of the artifacts back to England and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. they were like in Cairo and all of a sudden they, they like started bleeding from every pore and stuff and they got like insane malaria and they all start dying. And basically everyone surrounded who like directly desecrated the tomb and took something all died so that's like the most watered down version of it but same vein as Montezuma good enough no that was that assured me that it was nothing like the movie (laughs) bro there's so much treasure we need to go find though I know we need to make a list in in this area we got Forest Fen we got that Nephite treasure we got Montezuma's we got the Lost Dutchman down in Arizona the Navajo treasure from Dylan it's like I'll I'll be your air support I'll look in the air (laughs) because I've actually been doing it for a while (laughs) And uh, and yeah, you guys look on the ground. All right, dude. That sounds, we're quitting the podcast. This is the gold mining company. <laughs> no, you have, you have to keep up the podcast because it's the only thing that gets me through the day when I'm working <laughs> is the podcast. I'm in this empty shop. Like I, I need it. <laughs> That's good to hear, Thanks, dude. <laughs> those were awesome. I appreciate it. Those yeah. pump me up. I love those. Dude, it's been a while since we've gotten like a hidden treasure story. Yeah. Those are always fun. It seems so like outlandish. Like we said, like Indiana Jones, you know, like old school treasure hunting movies. Mm. And now like treasure hunting movies feel super corny. (laughs) But to know that like there are stories, lots of them of, you know, actual treasure being hidden all around the world and people trying and failing. But that's fascinating. Why all that treasure got to be cursed? Like, (laughs) Well, there's some treasure that you can I can guarantee you can find that's not cursed. Have you guys ever went geocaching? Oh, yeah, dude. We that got was, into that for a bit. That was like a big buzz like in what, 2013? So, I got a geocache. Yeah. But you can only fly to it. Oh. And you put it a, down? I put it down. Ooh. Yeah. I feel like and there's make, a crisp Red Bull in there if you can find it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like making and like 
creating the geocache or treasures and like burying it, like that's infinitely cooler than like finding it. Don't get me wrong, I'd like to find it, but it's like being the mastermind behind that, like hmm, how to get to it. I don't know. Same, same. But <laughs> yeah. uh, your first story about the dreams, right? The guy who received dreams. Yeah, yeah. Reminded me of something. Someone here had some dreams. Oh, my dream? You're talking about my dream? You want to share it or no? I can share. I share with these two dudes. Uh, when? Where were we? Four days ago. Oh, we were here. <laughs> yeah. Watching a movie with Kevin. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you ever get sleep paralysis? Never. And I've heard you guys talk about this before on how like after you talk about it, the person gets sleep paralysis. So I'm going to leave. <laughs> I don't want my sleep interrupted. <laughs> okay. uh, you could tell it. You could tell it's it. Still, it's still just yeah. those two. Yeah, you go cool? ahead. I'll call gonna, you. I'm I'll gonna, call you tomorrow if it happens. Okay, I'm not going to make you sit here. And I sleep. Listen. I sleep so hard. Okay, good. good. Like with my eyes shut. Good. Good, good luck. It's going it's to <laughs> it's be harder to get out. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he got a twinkle in his eye. Like he's like, oh, get ready for this, son. I used to get sleep paralysis a lot younger uh, when I was younger and they've gone down and like how much I've gotten them over the years. Now I probably get it. Like I don't really get it. I can feel when it's like about to happen. I can, I can feel my body like pressing against the bed. And as I start feeling that pressure, I almost like tear myself out of that state it i feel like it takes a lot like takes all my energy out of me and i had it for the first time in maybe like six months about a week ago and this was by far the most vivid experience of sleep paralysis i've had since i was a kid and when i was a kid i would see shadows in my room during the sleep paralysis but growing up i would learn when it was coming to pull myself out of it and I wouldn't see those shadowy figures or whatever anymore. But this time I did. So <laughs> I'm sleeping, I'm dozing off. I'm not sleeping. I'm, do- I'm starting to doze off and I can feel that pressure come onto me. So I-, I try to turn my body and I rip myself out of it. And I'm already like panting and breathing heavily and trying to calm myself down. I'm looking around the room and nothing. So my eyelids are super heavy and I just want to sleep. Um, I close my eyes and almost immediately it happens again. So I, I turn my body and I'm, I'm still breathing really hard. And I'm, I'm starting to kind of freak out, but I don't know. What do you do? I, maybe I should have gone and turned the lights on and like watch some TV or something. But... At that point, I don't know if it, you, you've had sleep paralysis. Yeah, and it's weird because you're so tired. You're super, you're super in this tired. Battle and you're so <laughs> tired. So it's not yeah. like you just jump up and you're like, oh, that's weird. You're like like in a battle. Like there's a level of exhaustion that I don't know how it, how it gets there because all you've been doing is just laying down, you know. So I think it's more mental than anything. But the third time I close my eyes or I'm about to close my eyes, I'm laying on my side and I'm staring at the window and... The windows close. The blinds are closed for the window. And through the window, I watch as a shadow walks towards me. 
from the window to me and puts his head right next to my ear and says, DJ. And I started like grunting from there. Like I felt like I couldn't move and I was just like, uh, uh, like struggling through like something like holding me. And when I finally broke through that, then I felt a lot more awake, like that exhaustion left. So I stayed up for a little longer. I wasn't feeling as tired. And after, I don't know, maybe a few minutes, 10 minutes or so, that heavy feeling had already kind of like dissipated. And I went to sleep and slept real hard (laughs) for the rest of the night. But yeah, I don't, yeah, that's... That was uh that was my weekend. <laughs> I just I'm just like my mouth is open, my eyes are wide, and I'm like no more, please. You know it. What it reminds me of is, do you ever see that flick Insidious? Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Um, where they can astral plane mm-hmm. and leave their body. Do you think that your sleep paralysis has any correlation to astral planning? Like you're actually leaving or about to leave? Dude, I have no idea. And in the back of my mind, I feel like if I didn't shake the feeling, I put myself in a state where I could astral plane or lucid dream at least. But I'm already so programmed to shake that feeling that I can never make it that far because it's still terrifying. No kidding. And I don't know if it's like enough pull for me. Like, do I really want to see what it's like or what's on the other side? Or that those shadow figures know that you're close to leaving. And are waiting to step Snatch. in. Snatch. To take your spot. Do you know the story about me and the Ouija board? Remind me real quick. It's I told this on our earliest episodes. So I, I don't want to go into it because it's such a long story. But I had a period of two years where almost every night I was getting really bad sleep paralysis. To the point where I would see a figure standing at my door every night. And it got so bad I turned my bed around so that my back was to the door because I I was just like, I can't see this anymore. And come to find out, I had accidentally forgotten. If you, Seriously, if you're a listener and you want to hear the story, pause this right now and go back and listen to it because it's one of my best stories of myself. It is a good one. It, it really blew is. my effing mind. Like, no joke. But you just asking if you've ever astral plane. I would always be awake, but I'm in the corner of my room looking down on everything. Anyway, hmm. so there's that. That's something I've committed to myself. Again, like what we talked about in the beginning, I'm not very, I am a spiritual person and I believe in things of, of a spiritual nature. However, I'm not in tune with those frequencies, so I don't see ghosts. Um, I don't have visions or anything like that. Hmm. I've committed to myself never to <laughs> dabble in astroplaning. Not once. I really enjoy being here. <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad, not a bad thing to That's do. That's a good idea. <laughs> I like that. Well, anyway, DJ, your story. No, you're tonight. good. You're good. <laughs> Sorry, dude. No, no. Uh, all of our stories are wildly different tonight, which is fine. Uh, so let's see if I can set the scene here. Uh, this story comes from Sophie, and she starts off by saying. These events occurred two summers ago in the Grand Teton area. We've all been there. I assume you've been there. For sure. Yeah. Love it. Beautiful. One of my favorite national parks. But she is backpacking there first time, but with her boyfriend, who is now her husband. His name's Harry. 
Is it her first time backpacking or backpacking in the Tetons? First time backpacking, period. Oh, yeah. okay. So she's excited. Uh, she's very athletic. Her boyfriend, uh, Harry, um, was in the military at the time. And this happened early, mid-2010s. So not long ago. And they're preparing for this trip. They have everything they need. It's going to be 25 miles long. And it's going to go over four or five days. So they're pacing themselves somewhat slowly. Enough time to get to know the area and enjoy themselves. And they're ready to go. So they get there. And the first hour of their hike is like a 45 degree angle like straight uphill. Mm-hmm. So they start off with a pretty strenuous part of their hike. And so they're talking for a little bit in the beginning and after a while they're getting tired of talking, they're losing their breath. So they're just hiking in silence, you know, hiking up this hill and breathing really hard and about an hour later they're getting closer to the top. And they realize that their breaths are the only thing that they can hear. They take a quick break. Their heart rate slows down a little bit. They rest. And there's no sounds of birds, no animals, nothing. So Harry says, it's usually not the best sign. Usually like there's a predator, like a bear in the area. But... I, I feel okay right now. So she says, okay, she's following his lead. She's in front of him. He has her back. He's like helping her up the hill. So they continue and they get to the top. When they get to the top, Sophie says that her lungs tighten. 10 feet in front of her was a grizzly bear. 10 feet. Well, grizzly bears are slow, right? Yeah, super. <laughs> and very docile. <laughs> very friendly. Yeah. <laughs> well, well Smokey the Bear was a yeah. grizzly, right? <laughs> no, they can run 40 miles an hour. Yeah. You're not supposed to get within 900 yards of them. Like, that's what all the signs up in Alaska say 900 yards. And yeah. she's 10. And feet. she's uh, three yards. <laughs> um, she locks eyes with this grizzly bear. And without breaking its line, her line of sight with it, she reaches behind her for Harry, like waving her arm behind her. And it sounds like he's still walking towards her and breathing heavily. So in her mind, she's like, he, he has no idea. Maybe I'm blocking his line of sight with this grizzly bear. And in that time, the grizzly bear goes from sitting down to standing on all fours and is alert. In that, in those few seconds, she can hear that Harry stops walking and hears his breathing stop as well. And he grabs her, puts her behind him, and he stands his ground and yells at this bear. This bear starts to walk towards him. Grizzly bears, there's not much you can do. If you know, if you know about grizzly bears and black bears. If you've seen The Revenant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you've seen The Revenant, 
you're supposed to play dead is what it what it is, right? Yeah, but you'll probably be dead. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and I've heard mixed things on the play dead thing. Yeah. The play dead is like you have fifty percent chance. Yeah. Well, the thing is if you run, you have like a zero percent chance. I yeah, but like. so what this military guy did is you also have a good chance if you can intimidate. Which like it sounds stupid to intimidate a bear, but if you can be like bigger than the bear, mm-hmm. it's hard to be bigger than a grizzly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. It's this thing that weighs <laughs> ten times as much as you. Um, she says that you know him being in the military, he's good at yelling, <laughs> but she's <laughs> not. Com- yeah, <laughs> she's not confident in I that. I cannot hear you. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> They're about to be in major pain. Weird, <laughs> I just got weird imagery of this bear all of a sudden. <laughs> like with with the like crop top cut. Yeah. <laughs> but this bear starts walking towards them and he's about six feet from them. I'm six feet tall, you know? So the bear could probably just reach out its arm and slash them. <laughs> One swipe, they're done. A hunter has seen a bear slap a moose and break its back in half. <laughs> I think we, was there a video or have we just talked about that? We've just talked about okay, it. Okay, no, yeah, I've heard that before. I think you told me. But they're paralyzed, except for his yelling. This bear gets closer when they hear a huge snap in the woods to the right. And on the left, there's a stream. The snap stops the bear in its tracks and the bear looks over after a few seconds snap again and the bear starts trotting off towards the stream away from all of them this part of the wood is really thick so they can't really see what made this sound and what I guess scared this bear away they don't want to find out. So while this bear is gone and while they can't see this thing, they start to walk away. And as they walk away, and they're hurrying along <laughs> to distance themselves from all of this, luckily they're at the top of the hill now and it's starting to flatten out. They hear a snap in front of them. And... There's still a ton of trees, and they're, they don't know if they should go back. If there's, you know, they don't know. She says that we don't know if there was one or two, multiple of these things. Like we could have been surrounded. Or what the hell it is. Yeah, or what the, <laughs> yeah. Hell, what the hell this thing is. So they decide to move forward, but slowly. And she said when she came to this clearing, she said that, She couldn't see because Harry was now in front of her, right? All the hairs on her back stood up. And at that same time, Harry stopped walking. She said that what they saw, all they could describe it was, that it was a large black brown mass, twice the size of the grizzly they just saw. And standing hunched over, on two legs with his back facing towards them. Before it acts or does anything, they decide to book it down the trail past this thing. As they're running, 
she says that they could hear large footsteps behind them. But they refuse to look back and decide to just keep running as fast as they can. After some running, they hear the footsteps start fading away, whether it slows down or goes another direction or just stops completely. They don't know because they didn't look behind them, but they run. And they say they run for about 45 minutes because they're that terrified of whatever this thing was. They finally slow down. They're still in the thick of the forest. And they walk a little bit more for another 15 minutes or so. By this point, they're about an hour away from everything that just happened. They're two hours into their hike total. And they get to this clearing, the beautiful view. And it's been, like I said, about an hour since they had, you know, that thing chasing them. They think they're okay. So they sit down, finally take a break, grab some water, have a little snack. Not even a minute after them being, or after them resting, they can see in the trees, the tops of the trees moving as if something is shaking these trees and they can hear it coming closer. And when it comes into the clearing, it's another grizzly bear. She says, I, I can tell you that it wasn't the black mass thing that we saw. Um, definitely was not the same thing, but still a grizzly bear. Uh, this grizzly bear was smaller, um, not a cub, but like an adolescent almost, and started running towards them when Harry takes out his bear spray, screams, runs at it while spraying. And the grizzly bear turns around and runs back into the woods. Sophie said, all I could think was just my luck. <laughs> but that wasn't even close to what happened the second night. Oh, my God. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I'm so perplexed. At like, all right, so you see this big black mass. It, beyond that, you see the grizzly and then this big black mass. And you run for an hour, 45 minutes. That's a long time. And then you stop to have snacks. <laughs> I'm going into town. I'm going into Jackson. Bro, it's her first time. She's got to get. You know. no. Well, she has a mare badge. She's so, trying to get. So. so this is this is backpacking. So we we check. We saw our grizzly. Check. We saw a Sasquatch. Like, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, almost ignoring the warning signs. No Sounds kidding. familiar. Go home. Yeah. Um, night two is wild. And it's something I will be sharing on our Patreon episode. Ah, <laughs> guys, can I tell you how glad I am to be sitting right here right now? Because <laughs> I've been on the other end of this and been like, no, <laughs> I got to be a patron now. So they, Sophie and Harry get away from their second encounter with this grizzly or with a grizzly and they continue on their hike and we're back <laughs> dang that was crazy that was that was so wild <laughs> Bro, i can't believe you guys missed I, it like i'm so grateful that i'm on the inside right now because if i would have missed that story i don't know what i would have done <laughs> 
no joke. That was awesome. Is that you tonight, DJ? Yeah, that's me. All right, and then that's I'm up. All right, so for my story tonight, comes to us from Esteban. So shout out Esteban. Shout out Esteban. And Esteban goes to dental school. He's a listener of the podcast, and he goes to dental school with Seth. Seth. Yeah. So Esteban is one of Seth's victims, I mean friends, (laughs) who he's pestered into giving stories. And uh, Esteban grew up in Mexico. Cool. Is this the one where Seth was going to call? Yeah, a few yeah. weeks ago. Uh-huh. Cool. Yeah, I said I was going to tell this one a few weeks ago and just never did. So we finally get to hear it. So Seth's friend Esteban. Esteban grew up in a small village in Mexico, and it's called Victoria de Durango. And this town's known for a couple things, but most prominently, the practice of Santeria mm-hmm. and Brujeria. <laughs> Tight. <laughs> what? <laughs> Halloween town. Not what? tight, man. Not tight. <laughs> Why not carniceria? Just Anyway, so picture your quintessential like adobe brick building, small. Nothing's over two stories sure. high. Yeah, there is a town square, very pretty close community, right? So he's down there visiting his cousins, and it's him and two of his cousins. And their house is a couple, maybe several blocks away from the town square. So he gets there. He's shown his room. It's sort of this side guest house to the house that has its, its own entrance. And the entrance for the guest house is right on the street, almost like a back road. So anyone could just walk by, you know, right? Mm-hmm. So they're hanging out. And one of the cousins is like, hey, I think the markets are going on in the square. Like, you want to go? He's like, sure, let's go. And so they grab their money and they head to the square. They're going to get some eats and just check out what's going on, right? So they're walking around the square and there's all these like stands set up and people are selling different things, fruit, food, knickknacks, sewn things, blankets, stuff like that. There's music. There's kids running around. It's, it's lively. All the families are out and they're just having a good time. They're making a way, their way around the market and they come to like the very far end, the back corner. And as they're passing this alley, our friend Esteban hears a noise. And it's like a distant clinking. And it barely catches his ear and he stops and he looks. And he looks down this alley. And at the end, he sees a tent. And no one's going to it. So he stops and he's just staring at this tent. He calls his cousins back and he's like, hey, let's, let's check out this tent. So they start walking towards it. As they get closer and closer, he hears the noise again, a clinking noise. And he slides like the cloth that's opening the entrance in and he steps in. And immediately the air is like 50 degrees hotter. And it's because inside the tent, there are hundreds of candles. Like that's a safety hazard? (laughs) Bro, it's Mexico. There ain't no safety. (laughs) Um. And side note, Brujeria, Santeria, it's very object-based and a lot of their practices, like idol-based. So a lot of their effigies and statues are used to house spirits or trap spirits. Crystal balls. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) And him and his cousin step in and instantly 
they're like, oh no, because the whole tent is full of dolls and statues. Oh, no. So they're standing in there, they're looking around, and they hear the clinking one last time. And this time they know it's like in the room. So Esteban says, hello? And in Spanish, they hear an old lady say, come in. And he's looking around. He can't see like past all the candles in the room. And he says, hello. And one last time she says, come in. This time louder. And as she says it for the second time, all the lights in the market go out. And they hear simultaneously everyone, all the families in the market kind of gasp and freak out. And now they're in a room full of candles and they can't see anyone. They look at each other and they say, let's get out. And they run. They try to like hang out a little bit longer in the market, but they can't shake the feeling something's wrong. So they say, all right, let's just go back home. So they head home. That night they're hanging out in the guest house, just playing some old video games. When Esteban thinks he hears a noise and he tries to shake it, he just tries to continue, but he hears it again, a faint clinking noise. So Esteban gets quiet and his cousins kind of notice a shift in his mood. And they say, what's up, bro? And he's like, do you hear that? And as he asks that, they hear the clinking closer to their house. And he described it as if someone had a chain and was like dragging it on the ground. They pause the game, they get really quiet and they turn out the lights. And they hear this chain sound at the end of their street and it's getting drugged closer to their door. It comes, it gets their door and passes and they almost exhale. But then it starts coming back. (laughs) And for 20 minutes, they said they could hear this chain going back and forth outside their door until finally it stops going back and forth, comes right up to their door and then goes quiet. And they hear a (laughs) on their door. One of the cousins is fed up and he's like, I'm like, no one's going to punk us. Like we're not dealing with this runs the door and opens it up and no one's there, but there's a glow coming from below him and they look down and there's one candle on their doorstep. So his, his cousin's like shock bends down, picks it up and blows it out. And they look down the alleyway and at the end they see the silhouette of an old lady standing there staring at them silently. And as they're watching her, she walks around the corner dragging a chain. I don't know why, but they decide to follow her. Oh, man. <laughs> Stupid. Dude, this is great for us. <laughs> Content. So the, the three of them like grab each other and they said they gave her the healthiest distance. <laughs> So they like the three of them huddled together, go down the street and they follow her. She goes to the square. They get to the square. They're on one side. They see her go to the back alley and turn the alley. And all of them say, nope, not doing it. And they run back home and shut their door. And that's it. (laughs) The end. And that is why we're hearing this story from Esteban today. Esteban. Yeah. But he said one. He doesn't know how she knows where they lived. So she had to have followed them or something and like what all that meant. They didn't, they had no idea what it meant, what the candle meant, what the chains meant. 
Yeah, that's really creepy. Esteban's cousins who grew up in that village. Esteban, oh, so Seth told Esteban about the podcast. Esteban started listening, and now he's listening to every episode. And he's told his cousins, and they're like, bro, we have so many stories of brujeria down here. Cool. <laughs> and so we're, I'm working with Seth to try to get them from Mexico. Oh, dang. How's that, how's that old woman so agile? <laughs> knocking on their door one second. And then just being at the end of the alleyway being right after that. That reminds me of a hot fuzz. Multiple old people in on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's like one of my favorite movies. Yeah, crusty jugglers. <laughs> I feel like they should just know that that booth at the very like outskirts of the marketplace is not a place you should go. I know you say that, but I 100% see me and Sean, DJ, down in South America, and Sean would be like, let's go check it out. So, uh, and we would. That's why we probably can't travel together. Yeah. I, <laughs> so oh, You have the smart gene in you. Yeah, so you know, going into that little booth, uh-uh. See, but we consider ourselves not uh, more paranormal instigators. You are a so. paranormal instigator. <laughs> I'm we? a paranormal noob. <laughs> We need more of you, dude, <laughs> yeah, just to balance I, it out. You know? I, like, I can't be around you. I'm already like fighting <laughs> off sleep paralysis. <laughs> but I have another story. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> what? My mom, turns out, knows a medium from uh, Sacramento. What? Uh, Sacramento is supposed to be super haunted, right? I mean, there's a lot of history there. The gold rush, all that stuff, that era. The kings are terrible. Always. Yeah. So this medium has told my mom all her stories. And it's funny you were talking about spirits because all her stories have to do with like malevolent spirits. Most notably, the story of this child who has some imaginary friends. Uh, Foster? (laughs) No, (laughs) shut up. (laughs) And it starts with the mom walking past the child's room as it's as she as it's supposed to be sleeping and hearing it talking to someone she opens the door to find the child facing the open closet and just having a full-on conversation saying what bro and i'll tell you the rest the next episode (laughs) (laughs) i'll tear you (laughs) because the medium's typing it up or something and getting it to my mom so we'll have the rest later. Cool. Uh, but she has several cases. And my mom was going over him and I was like, yo. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Is that you? That's me. <laughs> Dope. Anybody got anything else before we close? Dom, thank you for coming. It yeah. was an absolute pleasure. Absolute. And Dom has more stories, guys. Say yeah, I gotta get you guys some Maori content as soon as I get it. Bro, <laughs> that one though that you have, I really like. Which one? Um, how do I tell it without telling it? The hike you did with your father. Oh yeah. And I have a photo for that to show it. <laughs> yeah. But next time. Join in next time. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's been great. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Everybody out there, again, thank you for, for listening. Dude, we, this podcast is nothing without our listeners. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, have a good week. And until next time, uh, trust your guy and watch your back. Bye. I love you. Be safe. Be careful out there. Oh, I didn't come up with a tagline. <laughs> Dang it.
to my wife, I said hello. Ooh. Hey, <laughs> good man, <laughs> good man, Kia Kaha. All right. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of 3AM. If you want to support us, visit our Patreon where patrons have access to exclusive content. If you're not able to support us monetarily, don't worry. This episode is on us. You can still rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on. It really does go a long way. You can also follow us on social media. Our handle everywhere, including Patreon, is the 3AM pod. Finally, do you have any scary stories? If so, submit them to our website, the3ampodcast.com. We love any audio or visual aids that can help bring your stories to life. So file uploads are welcome with your written submissions. We're anxious and excited to hear from you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in-depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.